I know we told you that we would have it the first Sunday night of every month, and here it is, the third Sunday, and we're going to have it tonight. And, um, well, that's because when we did the changeover of service times, we had already things scheduled far in advance, like the beach baptism at the water park. Uh, also, next month, there was a date I couldn't get out of that'll uh, have me gone. But you know what? Blessed are the flexible. They shall not be broken. So just be flexible and we'll announce it and uh, we'll get it done. Now let's turn in our Bibles to uh, Psalm 23 this morning. The 23rd Psalm. This is certainly one of the most well-known passages in the Scripture. Uh, Even pagans know this one. It has comforted God's people for many, many centuries. Young and old alike. It is so simple a child can understand it, and yet I think it's deep enough that a theologian could drown in it. It's a beautiful, beautiful psalm. It has been called by scholars the Psalm of Confidence. It's best known as the Shepherd's Psalm. Charles Spurgeon, that great Victorian preacher from London, called it the pearl of all the psalms that delights every heart. It's just a great text of Scripture. Alexander McLaren said, The world could spare many a large book better than this sunny little psalm. It has dried many tears and supplied the mold into which many hearts have poured their peaceful faith. It's one of our favorite psalms. It's one of our favorite scriptures. And yet, I have to confess that it's a a misunderstood psalm. Certainly, it's a misapplied psalm. When you think of hearing Psalm 23, where do you hear it the most? Funerals, exactly. In fact, I think on television, anytime they want to show a depiction of a funeral, the camera zooms into a graveside ceremony, and there's some preacher with the book open, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Invariably, this psalm is read. The reason is because there's the mention in it, if you notice, the valley of the shadow of death. But this psalm speaks to the living, and it's a psalm for the living, not for the dead. That's why I say I think it's misapplied. I heard a story about a minister who it was in a small town in a small church and went visiting on members of his congregation. He went up to one house and knocked on the door, no answer. Knocked again, no answer. But he could see through the curtains that a television set was on, so he knew somebody was home. Well reached in his pocket, pulled out his card, and wrote on it, Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open the door, I will come in. And he left his card and walked away. Well, Sunday after his sermon, a woman walked up to him, the woman who lived at that house, and handed the preacher her card that said on it, Genesis 3.10, which reads, I heard your voice, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. (laughs) Tit for tat. Cute story, but misapplied scriptures. And I feel the same about Psalm 23. This psalm speaks about a person's relationship with the shepherd while they're alive, not while they're dead. It's about what he can do for you while you're living. Psalm 23 has been on a marble pedestal for too long. 
It's time we take it down, break it up, and use it. We're going to do that the next three weeks. We're going to camp right here, spread our tent over Psalm 23 for three weeks. And today we're going to look at all of two and a third verses in this psalm. And I hope that it will mean more to you than a eulogy, that it will become something very practical. I call this message Confessions of a Happy Sheep. There are five in these two and one-third verses, five things that David says about his relationship with his shepherd. And notice the first one is association. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, most of us know that David was a shepherd. He lived in Bethlehem, and his job as a kid was raising those sheep out in the wilderness for most of his young life. So he knew how much care sheep require. And so using the same metaphor that he was used to, he just says, the Lord is my shepherd. And we know that the Bible speaks about God shepherding his people, not only in the Psalms, but in other portions of the Bible. For instance, Isaiah chapter 40 says, he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. A beautiful picture of God's care for his people. But there's another side to this. Because if the Lord is our shepherd, that makes us his sheep. Now, depending on what you know about sheep, that's a comfort or an insult to you. Because sheep are not the brightest animals. And you think of all of the animals God could have compared us with. He didn't call us eagles, though we may think we are. He didn't call us lions, though we might think we roar like lions. God calls us throughout the scripture his sheep. Why is that? Simply put, God is a good judge of character. He knows us a lot better than we know ourselves. A great little book called The Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. It's a classic. It's written by Philip Keller, who was once a shepherd in Canada. And as a shepherd, he writes about Psalm 23 from his perspective. He says, as one with experience, quote, Sheep do not just take care of themselves, as some might suppose. They require more than any other class of livestock, endless attention and meticulous care. It is no accident that God has chosen to call us his sheep. The behavior of sheep and human beings is similar in many ways. For instance, our mass mind or mob instincts, our fears and timidity, our stubbornness and stupidity, our perverse habits are all parallels of profound importance. So the message is sheep are soft, but they dumb at the same time. And to me, I'm not insulted by that. I'm thrilled that he would be my shepherd. That's an awesome thing. And I think what David is doing is simply making a statement of dignity. He's bragging. He's saying, look at who my owner is. Like a young son who says, look at who my dad is or my mom. Bragging. They can do no wrong. My dad can do anything. He can beat up your dad. He could build anything. David is bragging about his shepherd. Do you know people who are pet owners that don't take care of their pets very well? Maybe in your mind you could think of somebody, they have a dog, but you think they shouldn't have a dog. They don't clean after the dog that much. They, they don't spend much time. They never walk the dog. Uh, they never brush the dog until birds start building nests in the fur. Then they think, it's time to do something about this animal. 
But then at the other end of the spectrum, there's that professional dog owner. I mean, the dog is their life. They write a will for the dog. The dog is not only well-groomed, the dog is entered in dog shows. In the winter, wears designer sweaters. You know the type. Personalized plate over the doghouse, Fido. Of course, it's P-H-Y-D-E-A-U-X. You know, the classy Fido. Now, we look at that and think, it's gone overboard. But if you were a dog and you could choose which owner you would want, which would you choose? The one who goes nuts over his pet. You'd brag about that owner. The Lord is my shepherd. Speaks of care. And David personalizes it. It's not, the good Lord is a generic shepherd. He's my shepherd. There's a personal relationship I have. I heard of a little boy who lived at the Mississippi River. River, The Mississippi River. And he walked out to the banks of the river one morning, and there was an old gentleman who was a fisherman. And guy was casting his line. An experienced guy lived there all his life. And they were talking, having a great little conversation. Suddenly, down the river came that huge river queen, the boat that sailed up and down the river, tooting its horn and making a spectacle. And the little boy jumped up and waved his arms frantically. Over here, over here, stop, stop, give me a ride. The old seasoned fisherman said, come on, that boat is far too big and important to stop for little boys. He was surprised when the boats turned toward the little boy, came to the shore and let down its plank. The little boy turned to the old guy and he said, I knew it would stop. The captain's my dad. (laughs) I think that's what David is declaring. The shepherd, he's my dad. The Lord is my shepherd, personalizes it. So there's an association. Now, I have read that some have thought that this psalm was written when David was a kid because there is such an idealistic view of God. It had to, they say, have been written by somebody young who hasn't really experienced pain and hardship. They wouldn't write about God like this. Almost every scholar believes that the tone of this psalm reflects that it was written by somebody older. Not somebody young, not somebody naive, somebody who has mileage under their belt, who has been around the track with God. Because it says, he spreads a table in the midst of my enemies. David didn't have any enemies till he was older. He had a bunch of sheep, and they were not his enemies. He didn't have enemies enemies till he met King Saul and fought Goliath, and after that he had lots of enemies. So it's written by somebody who's been around the track in life and still trusts God, and I think that's important. Because some of us have gone through or are going through experiences, and we think, man, I wish I could read something that I can relate with. You can relate to this psalm. It's during those times of hardship that we really see the value of having a shepherd. And that's why David writes about it. And he keeps through his life that perspective, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, to make that statement, the Lord is my shepherd, implies ownership. Implies God is in charge and you are following him. You are obeying him. I know people who want the benefit of the sheepfold, but they don't want the control of the shepherd. They go to sheepfold meetings every week. They're they're faithful in the sheepfold among God's sheep. 
And though they may say, yeah, I believe in God, the Lord is my shepherd, they don't want his management. They don't want his control, his guidance. Don't go there, go here. I think if the truth be known, rather than saying the Lord is my shepherd, some would have to say other things like the Lord is my bail bondsman. He baileth me out when I'm in trouble. Because that's all they call on him for. He never hears from them unless they're really in a jam. Others might say, the Lord is my scapegoat. I blameth him for all of my problems. Still others would say, the Lord is my Santa Claus. He giveth me all the things that I claim, hallelujah. But the issue here is, who controls your life? Who is in charge of your life? Who's making the decisions? Who's your shepherd? What's your shepherd? Is it a job? Is it an author that you respect? Could it be movies or television? You get all of your guidance from what the popular media says. I found an interesting little poem. I won't read it all, but it's called the 23rd Channel rather than the 23rd Psalm. The TV is my shepherd. My spiritual growth shall want. It maketh me to sit down and do nothing for its namesake because it requireth all my spare time. It keepeth me from doing my Christian duty because it presenteth so many good shows that I must see. Are you letting ABC, NBC, and CNN be your shepherd, make your decisions, mold your worldview, or the Lord? Now, before we get on to the next little mark of a happy sheep, I want to touch on an issue. There has been a movement afoot. I thought it was dying out, but these things are cyclic. They just sort of come back. Called the shepherding movement. It's a movement that places an undue emphasis on trusting men. It's discipleship taken to an extreme. It's where you develop almost a therapeutic relationship with somebody you call your personal shepherd. If you want to buy a house, you have to go through your personal shepherd. He says, no, you can't buy. Yes, you can buy that one. You want to marry somebody? Your personal shepherd has to say, well, I don't approve. No, you can't. Yes, you can. And so everything is filtered through your personal shepherd. And, of course, it's interesting in many of these schemes, you tithe to your personal shepherd with his name on the check. Interesting kind of a pyramid scheme. Here's my question. When the Lord can be your shepherd, why would you settle for anyone else or anything less? The Lord is my shepherd. Now, I admit, with the title pastor comes the meaning shepherd. That's what a pastor means. And a shepherd implies tending and caring, feeding sheep. But at the same time, I am a sheep. And though I can teach the Bible and though I can give guidance with biblical principles, I have no desire to tell you your every move in life. I don't even know my every move in life, let alone your every move in life. And so who's your shepherd? The Lord is your shepherd. It's that personal relationship that you can have with him. Second mark is satisfaction. David puts it this way, I shall not want, or I shall never be in need. Another way to put it is, I'm fulfilled. He fulfills my life. I shall not want. Now, there was a little girl who was in Sunday school, and when the teacher said, does anybody here know the 23rd Psalm? She shot up her hand, ran to the front of the classroom, and began, the Lord is my shepherd. That's all I want. That's how she put it. That's all I want. And that's sort of the idea here. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I don't need anything. 
That's a bold statement. How is it possible that anybody can make that kind of a prediction? To say, the Lord is my shepherd, I will never be in need. I'll tell you how. Because contentment is a choice. That's how. Paul said, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Contentment doesn't just happen. You learn it. And you learn it through times of abounding and times of abasing, as Paul put it. It's something that you learn. It doesn't just automatically happen. And we live in a very discontented society. We live in a society that complains and and is uh, uh, discontented. That's why the boys on Madison Avenue are still in existence. They bank on the fact that you are dissatisfied. And so they'll say, if you want satisfaction, buy my product. Because they know it works. And there are Christians who are like that. They're discontented. They're dissatisfied with their lot in life. They don't have enough. Philip Keller in his book talked about sheep in his sheepfold like this. He called them fence crawlers. They're always on the side of the fence looking over to see what's there. Because it's greener over there. And then when they're over on the other side, they're looking back going, man, I wish I was over there. Listen to what he says. I once owned a ewe whose conduct exactly typified this type of person. She was one of the most attractive sheep that ever belonged to me. Her body was beautifully proportioned. She had a strong constitution and an excellent coat of wool. Her head was clean, alert, well set with bright eyes. She bore sturdy lambs that matured rapidly. But in spite of all of these attractive attributes, she had one pronounced fault. She was restless. She was discontented. She was a fence crawler. When you think about it, a complaining sheep is a disgrace to the shepherd. You know why? It reflects the kind of care the shepherd is giving. And think how it sounds as a sheep complaining about your lot in life. Think about others who are yet unbelievers who would listen to what you say and they think, why should I follow your shepherd? Look at you. You're never happy. You have no joy. You're always complaining. You're always discontented. And you're telling me I have to trust in your shepherd? Forget it. It's a disgrace to the shepherd. Jesus said in the great passage of John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. And he said, I have come that they may have my sheep, that they may have life and have it more abundantly. I, as the good shepherd, have this mindset for my sheep. I want them to have abundant life. Or life to the full. Now, abundant life doesn't necessarily mean a long life. It doesn't necessarily mean a rich life. But it means a full life. An experience where the sheep will say, I have arrived. I'm content. I'm happy with where this shepherd has brought me. I think of all the breakthroughs in medical science. How grateful we are for them. But all those breakthroughs, though they can add Years to your life, they can never add life to your years. If you're a miserable person and you live longer, you'll just live more miserably longer. But Jesus Christ can add life to your years. I've come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. And so in Hebrews 13, we're told this, Be content with such things as you have. For he himself said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Folks, contentment does not come from what you have, but who you have. You have the great shepherd. And when it comes down to the basics, 
when you boil everything down, everything you'll ever need is found in Him. You say, well, that's not true. There's a few things that I need I've been praying about. No, He'll provide all your needs, not all your greeds. Well, I need that. Well, obviously, He doesn't think you do. And you're alive. And you're here. And you should be thanking Him and praising Him. But David declares, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall never be in need or I shall never want. I was reading about a farmer who complained about his farm. He wanted to move. He wanted to change the pace. Got tired of the same old place. Every day on that farm, he found another feature to complain about. Finally, he said, I'm getting rid of it. Hired a real estate broker. Said, sell this thing. Real estate broker said, I'll put an ad in the paper. And so the broker put an ad together that said, for sale. Ideal location. Modern equipment, healthy livestock, acres of fertile soil. Before he ran the ad, he called up the owner of the farm and said, Do I have your approval on this ad? And he read it to him over the phone. The farmer said, Hold everything. I don't want to sell. I've been looking for a place like that all my life. (laughs) It took somebody else from the outside to sort of reflect that to him. He realized what he had had. So the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want association, satisfaction. A third confession or mark of a happy sheep is what I call intermission. It says, He makes me lie down in green pastures, or better, pastures of tender green grass. During the hot months of the year, shepherds love to take their sheep to the higher altitudes. In fact, in Israel, you often see Bedouin shepherds migrating with their sheep. When it's hot, they go to the upper topographical regions. When it's cooler, they go to the lower ones by the Dead Sea. So when it's hot in the summer, you want to take them up to the highlands. In uh, the book of Ezekiel, God speaks of his shepherding techniques. And he says, I will tend them in a good pasture in the mountain heights of Israel. That will be their grazing land. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. So to lie down means rest, relaxation from the heat. Now, I was reading about this. And I found out that shepherds say it's almost impossible to get sheep to lie down unless certain requirements are met. And the first most important requirement is that freedom from fear. You see, sheep are timid. They scare easily. I was reading that a jackrabbit, if it darts out in the path of a bunch of sheep, could cause them all to stampede. A little jackrabbit freaks them out. They get scared that easily. So the shepherd's job, part of it is to put the sheep at ease, give them a freedom of fear so that they can lie down and go, oh, everything's okay, the shepherd's in control. Jesus speaks to this, by the way. When he said, I am the good shepherd, he said, I lay down my life for the sheep. To understand what that means, verse right before that, he says, I am the door of the sheep. Let me tell you what that means. In the ancient parts of Israel where sheep were tended, shepherds would take the sheep out to the country and put them in an enclosure called a sheepfold. It was a walled enclosure without a gate, just an opening. Sheep would go in and out, but there would be no gate, no protection. So at night, the shepherd would hoard them all into the sheepfold and then sleep at the door. He would literally become the door of the sheepfold so that wolves, predators, could not get to the sheep unless they go over the shepherd. 
When Jesus said, I lay down my life for the sheep, when Jesus said, I am the door for the sheep, that's what he meant. They meant Satan can try to huff and puff and blow your house down, but he has to go through Jesus Christ to get to you. That means that I can lie down because I know who's at the door. I can lie down and rest because I've got such a good shepherd. He's taking care of it. I heard of a woman. Her name was Nancy. She was a a happy Christian woman. She didn't make much money. But she was always triumphant, ebullient, joyful. One day, while she was working, another lady who was very pessimistic, always had a dour, sour look on life, came in and saw Nancy smiling and singing and said, Sure, you're happy today. But what about tomorrow? What about later? Suppose your boss leaves town and you don't have a job. Or suppose you come down with a terminal illness. Or suppose, finally Nancy broke in, she said, Stop it. I don't suppose. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And it's all those supposes that make you so miserable. I know so many people that fear irrationally. What could happen? What may happen? What possible thing? It might be one in a billion that could ever happen, but they're afraid of it. Your shepherd wants you to lie down. And he takes the precautions to bring freedom of fear. There's something else in this, however. Notice how it's put. He makes me lie down. Now, that worries me a little bit. It sounds a little enforced to me, doesn't it? Then say, well, he lets me lie down. Or he shows me and says, if you like, you can lie down over there. But he makes me lie down. Now, reading that, I have to wonder, are there sheep in God's sheepfold that God has to make lie down because they wouldn't do it on their own? Could it be that in God's sheepfold there are some high-energy, type-A, aggressive sheep that don't know how to take a break? They'll never take a break. They won't lie down, so the shepherd has to sort of put them on their back, has to make them lie down. You know, we live in a culture that applauds the overachiever. The person that can manage to cram 20 hours into eight hours, four weeks into one week, wow, you're awesome, nose to the grindstone, that's great. Get that same person to shift into neutral for a while, they can't do it. Or they feel guilty if they try. Even though Jesus said to his disciples, come aside and rest for a while. Take a break. There's an old Greek saying that says, if you always keep the bow bent, eventually it will break. I know lots of people that have kept that bow bent for so long it snaps. And they feel that that's what God wants them to do. Even among Christian workers, there's this tacit belief that fatigue is next to godliness. I've heard it put this way. Well, brother... I'd rather burn out than rust out. That's dumb. Either way, you're out. If you burn out, you're out. If you rust out, you're out. Why not stay in for the whole race by pacing yourself? He makes me lie down in green pastures. Fourth, there is renovation. He says, he leads me beside the still waters or waters of the resting places. Speaks of a shepherd who gives refreshment to the sheep. In the Middle East, sheep thrive in dry climates. However, sheep need constant hydration. They're not like other animals that can store up water for days. They need a constant source of water. 
And uh, I have been in the Judean desert where shepherds are keeping sheep at 110, 120 degrees. Those sheep would die unless the shepherd, he's the key, knows the best watering holes and will lead the sheep to the place of refreshment, of drinking. Now, we have a good shepherd, and he knows the best places to drink. In the Bible, you probably already know that thirst is a word that speaks of spiritual craving and hunger. And our good shepherd knows where to drink. For instance, one day Jesus was at the well of Samaria with a woman who had tried all sorts of things to be happy in life, relationships, and she was burnt out at the time, angry at men. Jesus was there, and she's drawing water from the well. And Jesus said, you know, if you drink of that water, you'll thirst again. But if you drink of the water that I give, you'll never thirst. I think you could write what Jesus said over every experience in life. Oh, I'd be happy if I owned that house. Drink of that water, you'll thirst again. I'd be happy if I could have a relationship with... Drink of that water, you'll thirst again. If I could make this much money, I know I'd be happy. Drink of that water, you'll thirst again. Jesus stood up in the temple one day. And he said boldly, if anyone is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. In other words, I am the satisfier of the thirst of humanity. I am an eternal drinking fountain. Are you thirsty? Come to me and drink. Christian, where are you drinking? Where are you wandering to find refreshment and fulfillment in your Christian life? At the wrong well? Do you remember what God said to Jeremiah? He said, my people have committed two evils. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And they have dug out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Doesn't that sound ridiculous? God says, here's a artesian well. No, I don't want that. I want that broken pot, that broken cistern. So you go to drink and there's no refreshment. God created us with a thirst You were born with a thirst. You were born with a desire, a craving, a thirst to to be fulfilled. But people are trying to drink from the wrong places. I found out this week that in one year, Americans spend more on, get this, pleasure and entertainment than on education, building new homes, and national defense. You know why? They're thirsty. They're so thirsty. They'll look anywhere and buy anything for a moment of meaning. And now it's becoming more fashionable to become spiritual, to look in spiritual places. But not Jesus, not the God of the Bible, but just generic spirituality. I think the order of the day would be something like this. Uh, Yeah, can I have a small order of Christianity? Uh, Hold the guilt. I'm on a guilt-free diet this week. I'd like a side of Buddhism and maybe Hinduism. Oh, and throw in some of those New Age spices as well. Make it so good. The only place of satisfaction is from the shepherd who knows the right places to drink. And Jesus said, if you are thirsty, come to me and drink. That's the job of the shepherd. Finally, there is restoration. Look in verse 3, the very beginning. He restores my soul. Now, I've got to tell you that the Hebrew language is a lot stronger than just he restores my soul. It literally means to turn back. It means to return to the starting point. And so a better way to put this verse is my shepherd turns me back, returns my life to the starting point. 
Now, it could be that he's speaking of A, he is a good shepherd, he does take care of me, he leads me to green pastures and still waters, and after a time of intermission and rejuvenation, I'm ready to go again. But perhaps another way to look at this is, I am a wandering sheep, and when I get off the right track, I wander away. My shepherd is always faithful to bring me back to the starting point. He'll restore me. He'll convert me. Remember Jesus told the story of the hundred sheep and one left, and the shepherd had to leave the ninety-nine and find the one? You know why he told that? Because sheep love to wander. They need to be brought back. They need to be restored. I found out this week again that shepherds speak of a phenomena of being cast There's a certain condition a sheep can get in, and they say, that's a cast sheep. And it works this way. There's a certain type, a certain profile of sheep, I'll I'll explain in a moment, that starts to lie down in a little hollow, a little comfortable, moist setting. And while it lies down, the center of gravity shifts, so he's all the way on his side, and sometimes he can shift a little too much, and the feet are a little bit off the ground. He's not touching the ground. When that happens, because there's no footing, the sheep panics moves its arms and legs, and shifts the center of gravity even further. So now the legs are almost straight up. In that condition, the gases mount up in the gastrointestinal tract, cutting off circulation to all the extremities. That sheep will die because it's cast unless the shepherd finds it, puts it back on its feet. Now, I said it was a certain type of sheep. What kind of sheep? A very heavy sheep. A very well-fed, healthy self-indulgent sheep or a sheep that has not had its coat cut for a long time, hasn't been shorn. And when the wool gets long on the animal, it picks up mud, manure, stickers, and it's heavy way down. So the sheep can start to lie down and capsize. That's why a good shepherd will shear the sheep. Now, God's sheep can also become self-indulgent, a little fat and sassy. We can hear good Bible teaching and get fed, so pretty soon we just become little Bible connoisseurs. Yeah, good little sermon. I graded a five or six. Instead of meat that feeds our soul, we become fat and sassy. Or we become materialistically self-indulgent. Yeah, I trust God, but, you know, if I get into a pickle, I've got the wherewithal to bail myself and others out. No problem. The trust factor can be missing. Or perhaps God needs to cut things out of our lives. And it could be that your good shepherd will come after you someday with a big shear. You look at him and go, I thought you were a good shepherd. He is. He knows that he's got to cut things out to make you stand. And it might hurt to get things cut out of your life. But you know what? There's a relief when you can stand and have your footing and be brought back to where you belong. Are some of you wandering a little bit cast in your relationship with God? Do you need the governing, the guidance, the care, the rejuvenation of a good shepherd? Do you need to be restored because you're broken? A few years ago, I, I brought from California. My dad gave me a, a 1967 four-wheel drive, beat up. I towed it out here. It wouldn't start. And I said, I'm going to restore this. And, and the people who knew me and loved me told me I was dumb to do that. Don't waste your time. It's not worth it. It's going to take so much of your... And it's, it's just beat up. Well, I did restore it. And I thought, how much like God 
to see something broken down, beat up, waste, and say, I think I can fix that. Let me have it. Like my favorite poem, "'Twas battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it hardly worth his while to waste much time on the old violin, so he held it up with a smile. "'What am I bidding, good folks?' he cried. "'Who'll start the bidding for me?' A dollar, two dollars, two dollars, who'll make it three? But no, from a room far back, a gray-haired man stepped forward and picked up the bow, and wiping the dust from the old violin, tightening up the loose strings, he played a melody pure and sweet, as sweet as the angels sing. When the music stopped, the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, Now what am I bid for the old violin? As he held it up with the bow, Thousand dollars, two thousand, two thousand, who'll make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice, and going and gone, said he. And the people cheered, but some of them said, we do not quite understand what changed its worth. Swift came the reply, the touch of the master's hand. And many a man with his life out of tune, battered and scarred by sin, are auctioned cheap to the thoughtless crowd, much like the old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a song, and he travels on. He's going once. He's going twice. He's going and he's almost gone. But the master comes. And the thoughtless crowd will never quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that is wrought by the touch of a master's hand. The master can come and tune up your life and change it. And people go, oh, that person, forget, he's a a lost cause. God goes, sounds like a job for me. I specialize in lost causes. I restore that which is broken. Maybe your life is like that. You're cast. You feel helpless. There's no footing. The shepherd would restore you if you'd let him. Lord, thank you for the invitation to be our shepherd. We're not insulted, we're elated that we can be your sheep. We boast and brag that we have an owner that loves us so much that could care for us so deeply. Lord, we think of the association, the Lord is my shepherd, the satisfaction I shall not want. Lord, I pray that we'd rest in you. And I pray, Father, for Christians who are here that have been drinking out of wrong wells, that you'd bring them to their senses as a good shepherd, take them from the muddy holes and let them drink pure water once again, pure water of your word and prayer and fellowship, all of the graces that come with it. We're thirsty, Lord. We depend on you. And I pray, Father, for those who don't yet know you, those who have looked to others to shepherd them in other things and worldviews or themselves, and they're like weary and scattered sheep wandering. Bring them to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.